Hello, and welcome to the Urology COVID Lecture Series Podcast, brought to you by the UCSF Department of Urology. In today's episode, we have Dr. Matt Sigelman from Mayo Clinic talking about acute and chronic scrotal content pain, infection, inflammation, and beyond. Okay, so my name is Matthew Ziegelman. I am an assistant professor in the Department of Urology at Mayo Clinic, based out of Rochester, Minnesota. And I have a, a special, I specialize in male sexual dysfunction, but also have an interest in testicular pain. And so the goal of my talk today is to talk a little bit about acute and chronic scrotal content pain. So I'd like to thank the University of California, San Francisco COVID Lectureship Series for the invitation or the opportunity to be here with you. And we, we will have time for some, some questions at the end. So this is a list of my disclosures. I'm a consultant for Paradigm Medical Communications, but this will have no bearing on our talk today. And over the course of the discussion, basically all of the medications we use in this realm are considered off-label. This is a summary of what I intend to cover over the next um, 45 minutes or so. Again, wanna make sure that we have enough time for question and answer. And so I may sort of brush over things that you have a particular interest in or go into too much detail and other things. So please feel free to reach out to me either through the chat function or I'll give you my contact information at the end of this talk. So first I'd like to review chronic scrotal content pain and just scrotal content pain in general. So what is chronic scrotal content pain? Well, there's a lot of synonyms here, chronic testicular pain or calgia, testalgia, chronic scrotal pain, and you'll hear I use these interchangeably and many of us do, but I think chronic scrotal content pain is really the all-encompassing clinical entity here, and it's an entity, it's not necessarily a diagnosis. It's defined as pain or discomfort that's present in the testicle, epididymis, or spermatic cord, or all of the above that's present for at least three months and interferes with quality of life. So I think we can all agree we, we commonly see patients in the clinic that meet this criteria. Why do we care about this entity? Well, we know that chronic pain impacts physical, mental, psychological, and even sexual well-being for many patients. And it's a big part of our practice. It's suggested that two to 5% of new urology consults in one way, shape or form involve testicular pain. And on average providers, up to five providers may be uh, implemented in a patient's care prior to him undergoing definitive treatment. There's also suggestion that more than $55 million is spent each year on healthcare expenditures related to testicular pain. In reality, this is probably a vast underestimate if you consider the social implications here, missed work, decreased pro productivity, et cetera. So if you guys were anything like me during in residency training, when I heard that, that chief complaint of testicular pain, I felt like, oh no, I, I want to run the other way. Here, uh, um, why don't you take this uh, uh, consult, I'd say to my attending. But, but in reality, this is a common sentiment, right? There are challenges here for all the urologists. The etiologies vary. Our treatments don't always work well and often lack evidence basis. And there are challenges in caring for our chronic pain patients. They have many psychosocial burdens. They're frustrated with the medical community. And on occasion, we have to consider the potential for pain seeking. And thankfully, this is rare in the, in the context of chronic testicular pain, chronic scrotal pain, but, but we do have to keep that in mind and that can be frustrating for us. 
So I hope that by the end of our lecture today or our talk today, uh, everybody's got more of an open mind about the approach here. So, you know, this is me today, right? This is me, uh, um, oh, testicular pain. I wonder what's going on here. How can we, how can we help this patient? We do have to review pain physiology. I'm sorry. Uh, this is, you know, hearkening back to our neurology um, medical school days and some of the neurogenic bladder content that my colleagues will discuss in other lectures. But essentially, acute pain is brought on by noxious stimuli, that's mechanical stimulus, heat, or chemical stimuli. That activates pain fibers, afferent neurons that move to the dorsal root ganglia, to the uh, spinal thalamic tract, which travels cephalad to the pain centers in the brain, some of which are listed here. So we're all pretty familiar with that. That's well elucidated. What's less clear is this concept of chronic pain. The thought being that either there's persistent stimuli or there's aberrant firing from these nerve fibers, either peripherally or central processing of these, these um, signals that leads to um, persistent pain or persistent sense of discomfort. And there's also this concept of central sensitization. There's potential remodeling that occurs in the peripheral or central nervous system that, that accounts for some of these chronic uh, pain conditions that we see. Now, as it pertains to the scrotum, the, there's multiple innervations. There's the ilioinguinal nerve. We spare this in our um, radical, excuse me, our radical orchiectomy. This provides sensation to the base of the penis, the scrotum, and the thigh. There's the genital branch of the general femoral nerve that usually runs posterior to the spermatic cord up near the external ring. And this provides sensation and also motor reflex. And then we all know the pudendal nerve, S234, sensation to the posterior scrotum, penis, perineum, and also some motor function. What I was less aware of until I started getting interested in this, this concept is, this, is the spermatic nerves. And these are the visceral innervation to the scrotal contents. They're dispersed throughout the spermatic cord, but they actually originate from those retroperitoneal ganglia that we all learned about in anatomy, the renal intermesenteric ganglia, superior hypogastric and inferior hypogastric plexi. And if you remember, those also contain many of the autonomic nerves. And that comes into play in some studies that have looked at spermatic cord neuroanatomy. For instance, there's a study from 2016 where Oka and colleagues did biopsies of spermatic cords of patients undergoing surgery for pain. They noted that 50% of the pain fibers are, are associated with that perivasal tissue. So a significant portion of those pain fibers run alongside the vas deferens. Another 20% in the spermatic fascia, femasteric fascia, and then 30% sort of distributed throughout the cord. What they also noted was that sensory nerves run alongside autonomic nerves. Again, think about that, where those nerves arise from the retroperitoneum and the ganglia there. There was another study several years prior to this where pathologic specimens were looked at, again, in patients undergoing uh, squirrel surgery. These authors identified a median of 25 small caliber nerves within the spermatic cord, so lots of innervation there. And in patients who are undergoing surgery for pain, 85% of those nerve fibers had evidence of Wallerian degeneration, which is a process of axonal uh, injury, essentially, uh, uh, where you see inflammatory change and chronic changes distal to the area of injury, suggesting there's a pathologic process at play here in the spermatic cord. These authors also identified that that nerve density tended to be reproducible as it pertained to the Wallerian degeneration. So these abnormal nerve fibers were most common in the cremasteric fibers, the perivasal tissue, so running alongside the vas deferens, and then posterior to the internal spermatic packet, 
they called this a lipomanous packet. And we'll talk about the potential implications uh, as we talk about surgical treatment for chronic pain. So that's just a general overview um, of this clinical entity and then some neuroanatomy. Hopefully everybody's heads are still intact. Uh, the, the, I wanna to touch, touch briefly on the etiology of both acute and chronic uh, testicular or scrotal content pain. We're all very familiar with this differential diagnosis. This is, these are the phone calls that sometimes would wake us up during the middle of the night in our practice or in residency. Think about genitourinary causes of acute scrotal pain like torsion, epididymitis, maybe uh, an obstructing distal ureteral stone. Think about GI, like uh, an incarcerated hernia, maybe a sigmoid diverticulitis, potential vascular implications, and then hip and spine pathology. And I'm not really going to go into a lot of detail about this. There's lots of other uh, um, good information out there on acute scrotum, but I did want to touch briefly on acute epididymorchitis, which is infection or inflammation of the epididymis, testicle, or both. Uh, this obviously comes up it, routinely in clinical practice, but also on it, it pops up on examinations. So the thought here is that there's a scent of bacteria or urine uh, from the urethra, and the potential underlying etiology would be an increased hydrostatic pressure. Maybe there's a urethral stricture or BPH or even pelvic floor dysfunction people are avoiding against, um, and that, that you get retrograde flow through the ejaculatory ducts. Sometimes we don't always have an obvious um, identified etiology. These patients present with pain, swelling, and fever, on, but sometimes it's more of an acute or subacute process where it's kind of a smoldering onset of pain. This is extremely common, we all know that, and the majority of adult patients coming in for evaluation of acute scrotum, at least according to several studies, have epididymorchitis, or at least are diagnosed with that based on history and then exam findings. Age matters here. If you think about potential bacterial etiologies and the young patients or with high-risk sexual behaviors, think about STIs like gonorrhea or chlamydia. Older patients, think about your enteric bugs like E. coli. Uh, immunosuppressed patients, think about viral epididymitis or atypical organisms, and even think about mumps or chitis. Thankfully, that's quite rare with our vaccinations, but every once in a while, we will see an outbreak and that if it's acquired during the adult years can affect, um, can affect fertility. And then don't forget about drug-induced epididymorchitis. This comes up on exams, right? So amiodarone can give you isolated epididymitis. You stop the medication, the symptoms get better. BCG can induce granulomatous epididymorchitis, and that requires specific treatment. There are guidelines available. Usually it's an oral medication like doxy or Levaquin, plus or minus uh, ceftriaxone if you're concerned about STIs. And there are multiple antibiotics that we have with good testicular penetration like Levaquin, Bactrim's got reasonable penetration, doxycycline. So these are agents we frequently use. I do think it's important when you're counseling patients with acute um, epididymorchitis that you mentioned that, hey, I, your acute or severe pain should get better quickly, but you can have sort of mild smoldering pain and swelling that can persist for several weeks and that can be totally normal. If the patient has persistent, terribly severe pain uh, that's not getting any better, that's when you want to say, ah, maybe we should repeat imaging. Maybe we should get a scrotal ultrasound to rule out a, an abscess or a missed tumor or a torsion, something along those lines. But counsel these patients about the potential for persistent discomfort for a few weeks. I tend to give the patients the first episode for free, but if they have recurrent epididymorchitis, then we start getting worried about what's the underlying cause here. So I mentioned 
obstruction, whether that's from BPH, whether that's from uh, voiding dysfunction, whether that's from a urethral stricture, we can rule that out with a Euroflow, PVR, Cysto, maybe Eurodynamics. Repeating infectious disease workup if you're concerned about a nidus maybe in the prostate. And then don't forget about this rare entity, but it comes up and may come up on exams, uh, a mesonephric duct abnormality, like an abnormal insertion of a ectopic ureter could predispose patients to recurrent epididymitis. So that's sort of a foray into acute scrotal content pain, but let's focus now on chronic pain, um, which for many is considered the bane of our existence in the, in the concept of urology. So when I, when I think about uh, chronic scrotal content pain, I once again think about the potential etiologies as they pertain to the genitourinary tract, the GI tract, MSK. There's multiple sources of referred discomfort here that we need to be thinking about. And as we talk about evaluation, we're really go going to go into some details about how to tease this out. But what I wanted to point out is that about 45 to 50% of the time, despite our best efforts, we can't identify an obvious etiology for a patient who has chronic persistent scrotal content pain. And that's very frustrating for patients. It's frustrating for me. I, I tell them idiopathic, I feel like an idiot, um, but it's common and, and uh, we're all going to encounter this. A couple of specific entities I wanted to jump on here before we go into the evaluation. So post-vasectomy pain syndrome, we know we perform a lot of vasectomies in the United States, probably over half a million a year. Most patients do great. Some patients have a temporary acute episode of pain, maybe about 15%, but that should go away with supportive cares. Thankfully, only in about one to 2% of patients do they have persistent chronic pain. And we define post-vasectomy pain syndrome similarly to that entity of chronic scrotal content pain. So pain that persists for three months interferes with quality of life localized to those scrotal contents. Oh, and they have a history of vasectomy and this started afterwards. And it's not always immediate onset. It could be seven to, it could be months to years later where we see the symptoms arise. So it's not always the acute pain that persists. Maybe they go a period where things go great and then they happen. And we don't exactly know why post-vasectomy pain syndrome occurs, but there's hypothesis. Maybe it's a pressure buildup proximal to where your uh, vasectomy was performed. You get this blowout phenomenon, increased pressure as that vas deferens squeezes during an orgasm. Maybe it's perineural fibrosis in the area where we performed our dissection around the vas deferens and placed our clips or our suture ligations. Maybe it's antisperm antibodies that are attacking the sperm essentially after we make our cut. Again, these are all hypotheses. Patients who come in with post-vasectomy pain syndrome will talk about this, but there are specific findings on exam that can be useful. And then the other entity I wanted to talk about before we get into the evaluation is this concept of pelvic floor tension or pelvic floor dysfunction. And this carries with it many synonyms, pelvic floor tension, myalgia, chronic pelvic pain, sometimes chronic prostatitis. Essentially, this is abnormalities in the state of hypertonicity within the pelvic floor itself. Let's see if I can do that. So if, the, uh, if you're looking for this, you're going to find it in the concept of testicular pain. So about 10% of patients, some studies have suggested, have pelvic floor dysfunction as the underlying etiology. On the flip side, about 50% of patients with chronic pelvic pain will have chronic testicular pain. I think both of these are probably vast underestimates of the true overlap and the true incidence here. 
So screen for this and we'll talk about ways in which we can do that. There are signs and symptoms that make me think pelvic floor. If their pain is on both sides, if they have pain in other areas of the genitals or they have associated bowel or bladder symptoms that bring on the pain, think about these other referred sources. And then we'll talk about the implications of a digital rectal exam uh, in the course of our eval. The important thing here is that treatment for this is not surgical, which a lot of patients come to a urologic surgeon expecting surgery. This is pelvic floor therapy. This is sometimes oral medications. So that's etiology. And again, just a brief overview of acute and chronic pain etiologies. But now let's talk about how you work this patient up who comes into the office. So history and physical are key. And I really don't wanna belabor the history. You guys will have access to these slides and there's a lot of good review articles out there, but you really wanna go back to your PQRST that we learned about in medical school. So you wanna identify location, description, timing, onset, severity. Don't forget about radiation. Many patients will report that the pain starts in the scrotum, but then radiates to the inguinal canal, radiates to the abdomen or the flank or the hip or the back or the other areas of the genitals. These can be important. Sometimes it's still arising from the scrotal contents. Remember the innervation is, there's a lot of overlap there. But in the same manner, there's a lot of overlap there. So sometimes the primary etiology can be outside of the scrotal contents, but the brain is still perceiving pain in the testicles. So just just important aspect to, to elucidate. Again, look for changes in body function, get an idea of what the patient has undergone for, for treatment at this point. That's just an opportunity to engage the patient uh, as well. I do think the psychosocial aspects of chronic pain are, are vastly underappreciated. About 50% of patients with chronic pain have either a diagnosis or meet the defini a definition of uh, depression. We can screen for this with objective questionnaires. We can just simply engage the patient in conversation. But the key is sort of having that conversation, acknowledging it, and then if you pick up something concerning, like patient admits, and maybe I wanna harm myself, have a plan in place, have a, a relationship with a mental health provider. And I think in a lot of areas of urology, this is really important. It's not just chronic testicular pain. Don't forget about in a, a thorough past medical history, trying to elucidate those potential alternative etiologies to, the, to this clinical entity. Past surgical history. Now we could spend an hour talking about post inguinal hernia repair uh, pain, but sometimes patients will have an inguinal hernia repair and subsequently develop scrotal content pain. And some of the treatments we offer for that idiopathic or post vasectomy pain syndrome pain will, will still be um, uh, beneficial here. And then rule out or identify other uh, GU type uh, surgical interventions. And then don't forget to ask about the potential for abuse, which is unfortunately very common in patients with chronic pain, whether that's physical abuse, emotional abuse, or even sexual abuse. And, that, and obviously you're going to want to act on that, meaning get the patients maybe counseling, et cetera, if you identify that. Now there is a validated questionnaire that I find very useful in practice. Uh, this is called the Chronic Orchalgia Symptom Index or the COSI. 12 questions looking at domains of pain, sexual symptoms, and quality of life. And this allows the patient to put some of their, their sort of experience into context and say, oh yeah, other patients are experiencing these types of symptoms too. But it also gives you an opportunity to say, here's our baseline, and then when we treat these patients, how are we doing? And it's objective data. So if you're doing research, it's important as well. <coughs> 
So after the history, thorough examination, extremely important here. Communication, I think, is of the utmost importance. So we're not trying to induce pain or discomfort for those patients, but we're going to induce pain or discomfort for our patients if we're doing the exam right and eliciting where that pain is. Head to toe exam, do an abdominal and a flank exam, but obviously genitals are a point of focus. I like the patient to be standing upright. Start on the side that's less bothersome or non-painful and just be methodical about it, be consistent about it. I usually start with the testicle, anterior lateral, then work posterior, try to differentiate the epididymis from the posterior testicle because if a patient has isolated epididymis pain versus testicle and epididymis, that's extremely important when we think about treatment options. Sometimes these findings can be pretty subtle, so just keep that in mind. And then as we work our way, cephalad, just feel along the vas deferens, the spermatic cord. They've had a vasectomy, feel the vasectomy site, look for hernias, etc. Just be, be thorough. And here's a good opportunity to basically perform a genital exam on every patient you see in the urology clinic, uh, at good practice so that when you're doing this in somebody with pain, you're, you're ready for it. Now there is this concept again of post-vasectomy pain syndrome and a couple of specific findings which you may find useful, sort of high yield. Some of these patients have isolated pain right at the vasectomy site at a sperm granuloma uh, and no pain elsewhere. <clears throat> Other patients have isolated tenderness just in the epididymis, or that epididymis is really full. Maybe there's that blowout phenomenon we call. And again, you want to document this. You want to identify this because it can change our treatment approach. Other areas you want to focus on the perineum, the, the penis, the suprapubic area. Again, think about that referred pain or that pelvic floor dysfunction. And then I tend to perform a digital rectal exam in, in every patient, especially those where I'm suspicious for these kind of red flag findings. When you do the exam, again, you're going to have to counsel patients about why you're doing this. Feel for the um, sphincter tone. Is it hypertonic? Yeah, it's pretty normal if it's a young, healthy male. Is it painful, overtly painful when you, when you do the digital rectal exam? That's pretty abnormal. That would suggest that those pelvic floor muscles, that anal sphincter tone is, is, is atypical. And then you can actually feel circumferentially 360 degrees around the and feel the levator ani musculature and note if there's tender bands or if the patient jumps off the table or says that recreates my pain. Uh, that's pretty. That's pretty specific. And then obviously feel the prostate as well. And then finally, there's the referred pain sources of the ortho, orthopedic concerns, right? So hip and back are common referred pain sources here. Dr. Perlman at the University of Iowa has sort of been leading the charge and in looking into this. And, and uh, she has an abstract uh, looking at 50 patients with orchalgia who she performed provocative hip maneuvers, x-ray testing, and specifically looked for orthopedic concerns with a little more, a little more detail. 40% of these patients had positive exam findings, 50% had positive imaging, and many times this led to a referral to ortho and sometimes even intervention perceivably with, with help for the testicular pain. So easy to do these, these, um, uh, these interventions or these maneuvers are actually kind of fun to do. And so uh, I'm, I'm hoping to incorporate some of these into my practice as well. And then uh, red flags. So, so we talked a little bit about this, but when to consider sort of that referred pain, this is something outside of just some aberrant nerve firing from the scrotal contents. And this would be your bilateral testicular pain, your suprapubic or other genital pain. If they have concurrent urinary or bowel symptoms that exacerbate the pain or are associated with it. If they have back 
hip, flank extremity pain, and abdominal pain. All these things should put your antenna up to say, let's work this up from a different angle. Other evaluations could include a urinalysis to look for pyuria or hematuria, STI testing in high-risk patients. I don't know that a squirt ultrasound adds much in most instances, but I, I obtain one in every patient just to, on the rare chance that you're gonna miss something important. And to be honest, most of these patients when they're referred in to the urologist have already had this ordered by their primary care doctor. And then don't forget about these potential adjunctive tests like x-rays and even an MRI of the lumbosacral spine. I've found myself ordering more of these um, lately uh, and, and some of these are positive and that's, that's meaningful for these patients. So for those patients where we don't have an obvious referred pain source, where we don't that he says definitive management, more than just saying, okay, there's nothing going on here. I want this treated then I recommend a spermatic cord block. And I, this is diagnostic, it's not therapeutic. And the goal here is to identify, is the pain coming from the scrotal contents? So are the, if blocking those nerve fibers in the spermatic cord prevents the pain, that suggests that that pain is, is deriving from aberrant nerve firing in that area. If not, maybe it's referred from an alternative source. Maybe they've already had that central sensitization, uh, which is very challenging to treat. And we consider a positive response, a more than 50% pain reduction. And the reason for this is that there's data that this is a meaningful predictor of success rates with surgical intervention and other types of interventions. So to perform a spermatic cord block, you can do this in the office, which is what we usually offer at the time of consult. You can do this in the procedural suite. You can even do this under monitored anesthesia. We do a single injection here, but others have utilized a placebo-controlled block. So our single injection is with local anesthesia only. Some use local anesthesia and a steroid. The placebo-controlled block, you would do local, and then a different block, you'd use saline. And then you wouldn't tell the patient, and he would go out and say, oh, I had pain relief. And if it correlated with the local, but not the saline, then you're, you theoretically are really not malingering or placebo effect. The challenge here is that many of our patients travel from a distance, and so that's frustrating to come back and forth. There's no data that supports that approach, and sometimes that can affect your, your therapeutic relationship. So I use about 10, usually 20 cc's of quarter percent bupivacaine, 10 cc's we localize to the vas deferens, 50% of the pain fibers run there, remember, and then up near the external inguinal ring, we localize over the pubic tubercle, we localize another 10 cc's. Tell the patient, okay, we've done our block, go out and cause the pain, right? So if having sex causes the pain, go have sex. If taking the stairs causes the pain, we're on the seventh floor in our office, take the stairs down, do things that cause it, and then note, is my pain better? How much better is it? And does that improve my quality of life? And then have the patient call, call you in a day or two and let you know. I think counseling is imperative here. Patients need to know this is diagnostic, not therapeutic. The pain will come back. And sometimes because their body is taking that sigh of relief, when it comes back, it can come back with a vengeance. So I just always prepare patients for that. And bruising and swelling is common. Thankfully, hematoma is rare. I think it depends on how much um, local you administer and how many different pokes you do. So that is our overview of the workup. And then finally, let's talk about treatment. And there are a lot of challenges here. 
The etiologies vary, right? But we're really gonna focus on that idiopathic or post-vasectomy pain syndrome where you've ruled out a lot of the other causes. These patients are often frustrated. They've seen multiple providers. They have this sense that they're not being helped and uh, they've gone through a lot of other treatments. We don't have universally agreed upon guidelines in this space and we don't have rigorous outcomes data. So obviously there's some significant challenges there. For patients who just want a supportive care, we can do supportive underwear, warm baths, ice or warm compresses. There's anecdotal experience that says these work. Many patients are treated with courses of antibiotics. About 20% of the time, there's some type of infectious etiology at play, but oftentimes these aren't useful. And if they are, maybe it's only for a few days, and that may actually be more of an anti-inflammatory uh, component of many of these antibiotics like fluoroquinolones rather than a true antibacterial effect. This is just one example, um, something I put together for a review article about an approach to definitive management of scrotal content pain. So you, um, you do your physical exam, obviously that's important. You, you look for alternative etiologies for that scrotal content pain. We'll talk about structural causes that would be treated, but if you're thinking idiopathic post-vasectomy pain syndrome, that's when you're going to do your spermatic cord block. And we do have several different interventions that are considered non-invasive. For instance, patient has findings of pelvic floor dysfunction. So we talked about those red flag symptoms. I have a very low threshold to get these patients to the pelvic floor physical therapist. In fact, if we rule out the suspicious or alternative diagnoses, like this study from Plankin and colleagues in 2010 showed, the majority of these patients have suspicious findings on their evaluation in the physical therapy office. And many of them, again, these red flag symptoms, urinary, bowel, and sexual symptoms, red flags, get your antennas up. Compa the, there's another study that was put out uh, from Dr. Levine's group at Rush University, they looked at 30 patients who had a positive digital rectal exam uh, in the clinic and signs and symptoms suspicious for pelvic floor etiology, sent them to the pelvic floor uh, therapy, and 50% of those patients had a meaningful improvement in their pain, average reduction in pain scores nearly five points. So here's my, my tips, and I, I really talked to all the residents about this when we're, when we're talking through evaluation. When in doubt, evaluate the pelvic floor, those therapists can also help you evaluate the lower back, the abdominal musculature uh, for, for signs and symptoms of alternative diagnoses. Think about your red flags, establish relationships with your physical therapist. So sometimes patients are traveling from a distance and I don't know who the physical therapy providers are in Iowa, but I can help them identify resources like this website I found, pelvicguru.com, which can let them search for local providers. And just know that as the urologist, we're not closing our therapeutic interventions by ruling out alternative diagnoses here. Oral therapy, commonly prescribed NSAIDs are, are sort of one of my go-to first line, despite that not a lot of robust data. I like Meloxicam, some use Celebrex. There are multiple neuropathic pain medications, some listed here like tricyclic antidepressants, uh, SNRIs, even anticonvulsants that are studied in other realms of chronic pain that show some evidence. I point out here that we try lots of these medications, um, but the side effect profile is pretty significant and somnolence is always the, the, big, the big side effect that many patients care about. Just a little sort of um, note, if you are going to order a tricyclic antidepressant, think, think about getting a um, EKG beforehand because these can have some cardio, cardiotoxic effects. 
And then a lot of us who, who are, have an interest in testicular pain talk about things on Twitter. And anecdotally, I've had success with and some, some others as well. And people I've trained with, uh, with Flomax, with Cialis, and with Baclofen. This is probably patients where there's more of a musculoskeletal etiology at play. Um, these tend to be smooth muscle relaxants in, in one way, shape, or form. And uh, <clears throat> we've had some success there. So keep that in mind. When you think about chronic squirtle content pain data to support these therapies, there's minimal. This study frequently gets cited from 2007. 19 patients treated with gabapentin or nortriptyline. About two-thirds had, had a 50% or more reduction in their pain. More, more success if it was that idiopathic rather than the post-vasectomy pain syndrome. So these patients may be less likely to respond. There is data in other realms of, of genital pain, like chronic pelvic pain syndrome, where medications like gabapentin or pregabalin are frequently used. And if you combine that with amitriptyline, you may see success rates in excess of 60%. This study suggesting um, that gabapentin was better than pregabalin. Again, if you combine gabapentin and amitriptyline, I think a lot of these patients are going to have limiting side effects. So, so again, just keep that in mind and never wrong to involve your pain colleagues in this. And I talked about the spermatic cord block being di diagnostic, not therapeutic, but you know maybe it is therapeutic. Um, the hypothesis is that here maybe we're breaking that that cycle, we're breaking the uh, aberrant nerve firing, or maybe there's an inflammatory cycle. So usually this would be a series of cord blocks, maybe one every two weeks, uh, where you use local anesthetic and a steroid, that anti-inflammatory. This this abstract that was to be presented this week at AWAY from Rush. Again, um, a third of patients had complete pain relief, a third of patients had partial pain relief with an average of four blocks. Highly selected cohort here, but, but meaningful for some patients. Anecdotally, from, I don't have a lot of experience doing this. Patients just don't seem to prefer this, but anecdotally, people have reported that shorter duration pain tends to respond better, which makes sense. And then there are studies looking at spinal or peripheral nerve stimulation. Concern there is that you may have a foreign body requirement, transcutaneous electrical stimulation, pulse to radiofrequency ablation, spermatic cord Botox, which there was a study that came out just a couple months ago that said that, yeah, that probably doesn't work as well as we hoped. Maybe patients have vitamin or even testosterone deficiency that could be at play here and we can supplement that. And again, there's anecdotal reports acupuncture, and even vibratory stimulation. So the point here is that there are non-invasive treatments that are being looked at. The data is still emerging, but, uh, but hopefully in the future we'll have other non-surgical options. But that brings us to surgery. And as urologic surgeons, I, I think we like that we have an opportunity here to have a meaningful influence on our patients through surgery. When should we consider surgery? If the patient wants definitive treatment, these failed alternative etiologies, if we don't have any of those red flags to suggest this is a referred pain source, and you can get that through your history, your exam, and then your response to the cord block. Why do we consider surgery? Well, I think with appropriate patient selection, the, we offer a meaningful improvement for many patients and the results seem reasonably promising. With the note that there are limitations to that data. So there are multiple surgical approaches and we'll try to get into some of these here. For those patients who have a structural etiology, like pain isolated to a hydrocele or a, an epididymal cyst or a spermatocele, or even a hernia, oftentimes we'll recommend that be treated first. 
And if those are treated, there's data suggesting that many of these patients have complete pain relief. Now, obviously these are highly selected cohorts that are being published here, but improvement, complete pain relief in 70 to 90% of patients undergoing these, these structural cause treatments. But for many of these patients that come into the office, there's no structural cause, there's not a clear referred pain cause, and this is where other alternative surgicals may, surgical interventions may be indicated. So that again, you need that positive response to the spermatic cord block, at least in, in my opinion, before you move these patients towards this therapy. Let's talk through a couple examples. So if a patient has isolated pain to the epididymis, this would be most common post vasectomy, but can be just in general, maybe they had a history of acute epididymal orchitis and they have that persistent smoldering chronic epididymal pain. Maybe they have fullness and blowout. Uh, maybe they have just an isolated painful epididymal cyst and they're not interested in fertility. Epididymectomy may be a great option for these patients. It's a fun surgery uh, through a small incision, pretty quick and a nice, nice teaching case as well. And outcomes reported in literature range from 30 to 100% with improvement or resolved pain, depending, depending on how you define that. Uh, I think patient selection is key, right? So I think we get closer to this higher levels of success if you select your patients appropriately with your history and exam. If patients have had a prior vasectomy, we can offer vasectomy reversal. The challenge I find here is that many of these patients uh, like the contraceptive effect of their vasectomy and aren't interested in that. Uh, also sometimes insurance won't cover this and it can be an expensive endeavor. But the outcomes are reasonable. 80 to 90% of patients in the reported literature experiencing improvement in pain, 30 to 80% with complete pain relief and a reoperation rate for pain only 10 to 20%. This study I put in here just to point out that in patients with post vasectomy pain syndrome, epididymectomy and vas reversal seem to have similar improvements in pain. And I wanted to just note that it, there's a specific scenario where a patient has pain isolated to that sperm granuloma, no pain elsewhere. And you can actually resect that under local anesthesia um, and have really nice results. But if you have pain only in the epididymis or that epididymal blow, blowout, maybe an epididymectomy is the right move. If you have pain with ejaculation, suggesting maybe that muscular contraction at the level of the vasectomy site is the cause, maybe a reversal is the right way to go or a microdenervation, which we'll talk about. If there's more diffuse pain, then we're gonna talk about this microdenervation approach. And microdenervation of the spermatic cord is uh, another excellent surgical option. This was originally described back in the late 70s. It is characterized by surgical ligation of that innervation to the scrotal contents. So we usually ligate the ilioinguinal branches, the genital femoral, and then that spermatic visceral innervation. The key is to preserve testicular blood supply and lymphatics. And when I'm talking to patients about this approach, I, I liken it to a permanent nerve block. So if they had a response, positive response to the spermatic cord block, theoretically then we're permanently blocking transmission of those nerve fibers or that nerve signal. Here are my indications. So diffuse scrotal content pain or, or even isolated scrotal content pain, Idio, usually it's the idiopathic or the post-vasectomy pain syndrome who desires this approach for a variety of reasons. Patients need to have a failure, usually a failure of some type of conservative management. It's been bothersome, it's impacting their quality of life and they want definitive treatment. This can be performed via a microsurgical or a robotic assisted approach. And it can be performed with complete skeletonization of the spermatic cord 
or with a more targeted approach. So this is an example of a micro denervation with complete skeletonization. And this is from um, Dr. Levine at Rush University. I actually trained with him. So this is a similar approach to what I use. We do an inguinal incision, usually just distal to the external ring, deliver the cord, find the ilioinguinal nerve. And instead of preserving that like we would normally do, we actually ligate that and sometimes even bury it. Then we do a bring in the microscope and, and carefully dissect out the structure. So the, you know, presumably this would either be the vas, I think this is probably a testicular artery. We use microdoppler. You can spare the vas deferens, but you gotta remember there's 50% of those nerves run along the perivasal tissue. And so you wanna dissect that off of the vas deferens uh, for a period of about two centimeters. And there's some argument about whether or not you should, you should cut the vas if the patient isn't interested in fertility. Not a lot of data there. And ultimately you're left with a pretty skeletonized cord. So again, there's, there's a few arteries, right? There's the testicular, vasal, and cremasteric arteries you can often find. There's a lymphatic channel, the vas deferens, but, but the majority of the tissue, which is where all those 25, those median 25 nerve fibers run that have Wallerian degeneration, that's where, that's where we're targeting. Now this is an example of that more targeted approach uh, that was emphasized by Pericotal and colleagues. So this is the micro on the top, it's the micro uh, approach and then the robotic approach below. Essentially, the, the highest density Wallerian degeneration fibers, the cremasterics, the perivasal tissue, and then the tissue posterior to this internal spermatic packet. No, all of those get ligated, but you maintain the internal spermatic packet intact, so you're not trying to dissect out the testicular artery, the theory being that you're less likely to injure that, which is a concern, and we'll talk about that in a moment. So outcomes, pretty promising. 50 to 100% with pain, complete pain relief, another 12 to 24% with more than 50% reduction, failure in zero to 22%. And this rate seems similar regardless of the etiology. Complications are important. Big things here, hydrocele and penile or scrotal edema. We, we are trying to spare lymphatics, but some of the lymphatic channels may be altered, which could create a scenario of temporary or persistent edema. Patients need to be ready for that. Thankfully, it's rare and often self-limited. And then testicular atrophy, presumably due to injury to the testicular arterial supply, which is usually redundant, but, but thankfully rare. So I think the key here is counseling. Under-promise and over-deliver. Never guarantee these patients that you're going to completely relieve their pain, but emphasize that if you get a quality of life improvement, then I consider that a success. And then emphasize that despite these statistics I'm quoting you, these are based on uh, limited studies. The most, the largest series to date, 860 patients from Calixta and Pericotal, they used a targeted microsurgical approach, 50% complete pain relief, almost 85% with more than 50% reduction. And impressively, with long-term follow-up, many of these patients maintained that pain relief, which is important. This study I put here just to show you that even in patients who had prior scrotal surgery, epididymectomy, varicocelectomy, orchiopexy for pain, we still have an opportunity to meaningfully address these concerns with a microdenervation procedure. If that fails in that 10 to 20%, we can use these novel approaches like ultrasound guided cryoablation of the spermatic cord, but we also have orchiectomy. And I consider this the treatment of last resort in most circumstances. These patients uh, usually have had to fail conservative treatment or fail operative intervention and still have pain. 
The one case where we may go directly to this is that sick patient, you wanna get him off the table and he's hypogonadal already, so he's, he's gonna need testosterone supplementation. But otherwise, even if they've had a prior microdenervation, spermatic cord block first to verify pain relief because these patients can have phantom pain that persists. Uh, so, so if we do this, we do an inguinal incision and carry this up like a high inguinal orchiectomy. Despite our best efforts, we can't cure everyone. And I bring this up to patients during the initial consultation. I'm gonna do what I can. If I can't help you, I wanna get you to the people that can. If our interventions don't work, we can try meds. I never prescribe opioids. I wouldn't recommend getting into that realm. We have our pain colleagues that can help us. Think about those alternative referred pain sources. Maybe we, we were fooled in our workup. Um, pain medicine can be helpful. There are these programs out there. We have a pain rehabilitation center program. It's intensive outpatient program. It's not teaching these, it's not curing these patients pain. It's teaching them how to live with their pain and live better lives. And they actually have pain relief as a result of that down the road. So think, think novel, engage your colleagues, etc. So uh, just to summarize, and again, thank you all so much for, for, the, for your attention and to the COVID lectureship series for this opportunity. Chronic scrotal content pain is a challenging entity because the etiology is not always well elucidated. Our patients can be frustrated and we don't have an agreed upon definitive treatment algorithm. Despite that, this is an extremely rewarding practice. If you dive in head first, you gotta standardize your approach. You have to set your expectations. You have to think broadly about the differential diagnosis. And then if you're going to offer surgery, which is fun and meaningful for many of these patients, select and counsel them appropriately. Uh, so with that, this is um, my Twitter handle and then my email. I wanna encourage you all to feel free to reach out to me with any questions, concerns that, that arise. And uh, maybe um, Dr. Houlihan, our uh, current fellow at Mayo Clinic, uh, will bring up some questions. Um, so I think we'll just start with the, uh, those that were offered in the question and answer section of, uh, of the Zoom. Uh, but let me um, join the rest of the group in thanking you, Dr. Siegelman, that was a great talk. Um, the first question is, uh, is um, in regards to the efficacy of the cord block. <laughs> One of the attendees was asking, how long do you typically see pain relief with that lidocaine-based um, cord block? It's a, great, it's a great question and one I actually bring up with patients all the time. So there's, there's two scenarios. There's the scenario where patients have immediate onset of relief where they're sitting on the table and all of a sudden they take this deep sigh of relief. And then there's a scenario where they are mad that you put a needle in their groin and then they walk out of here and think there's no way this is gonna help. Irrespective of that, what we see is a, a wide range. I mean, this can be anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes of pain relief versus four to six hours versus even a day or two where patients will report pain relief. And there's some data, and I don't believe this data is published yet, but there are some, um, experts looking at the duration of pain relief and whether that may predict response to some of the interventions we have. Um, but it's a, it's a great question. But yeah, I tell patients this, you could have an hour of pain relief, you could have a few days, but usually it's about four to six hours. Okay. Uh, the other question was in reference, do you have a preference and is there a differentiation in the patients that you decide to use or recommend hot versus cold compress for, uh, presumptively in the setting of the uh, public for myalgia? 
Yeah, I, I, th I tend to favor if I think it's more of like an inflammatory effect. Like if they had, if the patient came in six weeks after what is pretty clearly an episode of acute epididymoarchitis, probably then I'm going to recommend ice uh, if they have got swelling, et cetera. If, if I think this is more trying to sort of relax the cremasterics, relax the pelvic floor, et cetera, then, then warm compresses. And a lot of times I'll just tell the patient to try whichever, try them both and see which one helps. Um, the next question is just in reference to duloxetine dosage for, uh, for oral pharmacotherapy. I mean, I guess in essence, uh, what, what dosage do you use? And then is, do you have a favorite oral medication for patients with chronic stroke content pain? Um, I actually, I don't think I have personally prescribed duloxetine per se. I, um, I like meloxicam, yeah. uh, 7.5 to 15 milligrams daily as an NSAID. Um, the, my, my wife's a psychiatrist, so I have like, a, uh, you know, whenever I'm prescribing like a SNRI, I always hear her voice in the back of my head, but, uh, um, I, I tend to use, you know, offer amitriptyline just, that was the experience I had with my training. And we usually start at like 10 to 20 mil, usually start at 10 and then up it to 20 milligrams QHS. Cause it's very sedating, um, or, uh, gabapentin. We can start at 200, 300 TID or even pregabalin uh, if insurance is going to cover that. Uh, the next question is in reference to uh, scrotal pain being uh, labeled as chronic prostatitis. Do you think most of the types of pain are related to pelvic floor uh, rather than chronic prostatitis? Or how does this interplay with uh, chronic prostatitis as a diagnosis? So yeah, it's, a great, it's a great question. Uh, I think a question that a lot of us grapple with. Um, I would say I am by by no stretch of the imagination an expert in chronic prostatitis. Uh, my my goal when I'm evaluating these patients, where I start to hear sort of those red flag symptoms, where and they say like maybe I've had a diagnosis of prostatitis in the past, is to uh, try to focus that exam to determine is this an infectious etiology that we're missing. I mean, you know, there's nothing wrong with obtaining a. Uh, express prostatic secretions culture, working them up. Um, but ultimately, I think a lot of patients who get that label of chronic prostatitis and chronic testicular pain ultimately have a pelvic floor etiology, at least that's playing some way, shape, or form. And sometimes it's an infection that sort of induces that tension to start, right? So there, there's a lot of interplay uh, um, within the, the genitals and the pelvic floor structures so uh, but it's there's no doubt it's challenging but yeah I think probably pelvic floor is an underappreciated entity um, so my threshold to work that up a little bit further is very low okay. uh, this is a reference to a patient we took care of this week uh, they were uh, one of the attendees is asking how do you uh, how do you diagnose and treat uh, suspected uh, intermittent torsion great question yeah we did was this one of our Attendee? Yeah, so <laughs> that's a tough one. I mean, you think about the the intermittency and the acuity of the pain, right? So, so sometimes it's uh, tor even torsion can be more of a subacute onset, especially in adults. Uh, and a lot of times the patients we're seeing are patients outside of the normal range of torsion. But um, for instance, the patient we saw this week had um, several distinct episodes of acute onset Testicular pain evaluation revealed a high-riding testicle. Um, they had nausea and vomiting and lower abdominal pain. And then they, the 
slam dunk for me was the guy did a in the ed did an open book before he did a um before he did a ultrasound and the pain got better immediately um yeah uh this is in reference to inguinal surgery do you favor upfront inguinal nerve ligation uh, during inguinal surgery such as a radical orchiectomy just to avoid any post-procedural chronic pain or what's your uh, what's your viewpoint on that uh, I I don't. I haven't thought about that much. You sort of just get ingrained in you from the oncology experience uh, in training. Preserve, preserve, preserve that nerve. Sometimes it's hard to find, right? Sometimes the ilioinguinal nerve is not very obvious. Um, and I counsel patients up front about the potential that we're going to inadvertently ligate that or that they may have some persistent neuropathy as a result. Um, but I don't purposefully ligate the ilioinguinal nerve. Yeah, it, that entity, that entity of post orchialgia, chronic scrotal content pain, we see it, but it's it's rare. And there are some interesting studies that have suggested that you can actually go in and and identify the neuro, the uh, uh, neuroma and try to resect that and 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 have some success with that. It'd be interesting to look at uh, radicorchiectomy specimens and see which percent, you know, uh, of all comers, what percent contain the ilioinguinal nerve, you know. Um, what are your thoughts on Valium supposit uh, suppositories for chronic scrotal content pain? Yeah, I think Valium suppositories are, are an excellent option, especially if you're concerned about pelvic floor dis dysfunction, right? So if you do your digital rectal exam and you note not only hypertonicity, but tenderness with the uh, insertion of your finger, levator, levator tight bands, etc., um, the physical medicine rehabilitation physician and the pelvic floor physical therapist that I worked with during my fellowship routinely prescribed anxiolytics like Valium suppositories and patients did, did really well with those. Um, there are, you know, there are, you have to decide if that's something that you want to incorporate into your practice uh, or not, but I'm very supportive of that and I have prescribed some over the last few months. Uh, this is in the arena of scrotal content pain. Do you consider IR embolization when varicocele is present? And I recognize that we're asking this to a microsurgeon. So, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we, I counsel patients about about the treatment options for varicocele, um, including varicocele, you know, including uh, uh, embolization. Uh, but but no, I don't routine. I wouldn't like routinely. I probably wouldn't use that approach to treat the painful varicocele um, and that may just be some of you know the bias as a surgeon right that may be some bias as a surgeon but uh, I, I, I also don't um, uh, routinely embolize patients before microdenervation or anything like that yeah essentially I call the microdenervation the uh, radical varicocelectomy yeah um. The next question is, do you have tips and tricks for how you perform your clinical uh, cord block? Uh, and specifically, where, you know, where do you do it? How do you, how do you perform it? <laughs> so we do a, sorry, as we're, as we're talking. So I use quarter, quarter percent bupivacaine. And this is, this is, again, this is based on uh, what I learned in fellowship. Everybody's got a little bit different technique. But we do 10 cc's basically try to isolate the spermatic cord at the level of the pubic tubercle near the external oblique ring 
uh, external inguinal ring, and then try to do 10 cc's in there. And you don't want to do too many separate needle sticks, right? So you want to try to make sure you get the right spot, but you also want to make sure that you deliver the medication where it needs to go. So there's some people who will actually put their finger in the ring and then go on each side of their finger to try to get those cremasterics and the ilioinguinal nerve, et cetera. But I tend to just go between my fingers. And then I do another 10 cc's a little bit lower, making sure I can feel the vas deferens like we would for a vasectomy or an in-office scrotal procedure and make sure you get right in the, right in the perivasal tissue. Um, 20, c, 20 cc's is a lot, and I, I do think it may increase my hematoma rate, so I'm really aggressive about counseling patients about that. And sometimes if I know I got the right spot, I, I'll only do 10 cc's. Do you try to do like a bolus uh, injection spot or is there any, I know some people with the cord block describe a fanning technique. Is there any consideration of that? It's uh, I, I try to do a, I, I, I try to do a combo, right? Like I, again, I want to make sure I hit all the, I hit the right spot so that we know this is a block that if it's going to work, will work. Uh, so they don't have to come back and do it again. But, but I also know that every time you blindly, put a 27 gauge needle into that area, you're potentially hitting an artery or a vein. So, yeah. yeah. Uh, this pertains to, uh, I think, chronic scrotal content pain post varicocelectomy, but the attendee wants to know, how long would you wait after a varicocelectomy to make sure that it was the cause of the pain? Meaning if they had onset of pain after, that's what I'm gonna assume, meaning that there was onset of pain after the varicocelectomy. It's, it's a good question. Um, I would wait at least three to six months. Um, and follow that patient closely. And off, probably offer some of these other oral alternatives. Uh, uh, but I'd say at least three to six months before we would, we would intervene. And that's the same for a vasectomy too. Like we definitely, we definitely want to know that or want to give these patients the benefit of the doubt that the natural history is such that if you have acute pain after a surgical procedure, most patients that gets better over time and more intervention is not the right, is not the right move. And that may be a setting where uh, some of the anti-inflammatories like the Mobic you discussed earlier was something we might elect to do. Um, I, I just have a question for you based off your uh, clinical practice and and treating patients with surgical intervention for chronic scrotal content pain. Do you have any, did you deduce any in, uh, insights that might optimize how you perform a vasectomy so as to decrease the odds of that post-vasectomy um, pain syndrome? Um, I would, I didn't deduce this, but I use this, right? <laughs> I, learned, I learned the technique, but I, I think, you know, the key with that is, as we mentioned, 50% of those nerve fibers run on yeah. the in the perivasal sheath. So just taking your your time to actually tease the sheath off the vas deferens. So you're just getting the vas and trying as hard as you can not to incorporate that perivasal sheath into your ligation or your clip placement or your cauterization, et cetera. Um, you know, there's, I don't know if there's ever, there's no data per se to support that, but I think just anecdotally that makes sense. Um, so that is all the questions from the attendees, unless anybody has anything uh, last minute. Perfect. I think timing-wise that works well. All right. Thanks, everybody, again. This was, uh, this was great. And uh, thanks to the COVID Lectureship Series UCSF. Uh, this is a wonderful resource for all of us. Thank you for listening. We'll talk to you soon.
Learn more by visiting our website, urologycovid.ucsf.edu.